end with prayer and we'll get started here. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are there. We're so grateful that you control all things. We're grateful that uh, you're bigger than this universe and that you contain it. We, we thank you that, that you are indeed sovereign, that you are in absolute control. Nothing shocks you, nothing surprises you. We thank you that you have a plan for the ages that is on schedule. It's not off one iota. Uh, your, your purposes are being achieved and accomplished, and at times we uh, look and we wonder how that indeed is happening, but it is. Your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, as we wrap this up this evening, Lord, give us clarity. Um, maybe issues that have been un unresolved in our hearts for a while. Uh, may you give, uh, give us some congruency. May some things fall into place. May we come away from this tonight with a better grip uh, of the fact that you are in charge and that your purposes uh, are, are set and that we don't always understand, but that, that's not necessary for us to understand. You're in charge and you do all things well. So as we open our Bibles, help us not only to be teachable, but give us a spirit and an attitude of trust. We're coming up on an important week uh, a week that uh, commemorates where we were a year ago. Uh, those events uh, marked us, and they have marked us forever. Uh, we're, we're grateful that you're, bigger, that, that you're bigger than any of those events that shocked us and surprised us and horrified us. So tonight, minister to us, comfort us, and do that throughout this week. We pray for Chuck this week as he works on his uh, sermon for Sunday, and as he is going to talk about the superiority of Christ. Uh, there are a lot of false gods in this world, and we're seeing all this come to a head, so give him, um, give him uh, great uh, wisdom and great insight into the scriptures this week, and great power as he preaches on Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Overcoming overload. You're overloaded just trying to get here tonight. Uh, the traffic has been unbelievable and all kinds of problems, but, but, but you've made it. And uh, this is our fifth week. Uh, we, we have uh, outlined some principles on overcoming overload, and our first one was, in order, to, in, in order to overcome overload, you need a sovereign. You need a God who is in absolute charge. Secondly, we looked at the fact that you need a Sabbath. Because the sovereign God built in from the very beginning the fact that we need rest and he modeled that for us and that's something that we tend to forget in our culture, even as believers. Thirdly, you need to be spiritually minded instead of worldly minded because uh, the, the, the world, which is so pervasive, seeks to pour us into its mold. Um, fourthly, you need a sanctuary and when you've got a sanctuary, it's comprised of at least three things. A sanctuary is a place where you can have solitude and where you can have silence. 
and where you can have stillness. And that's, all those things are at a premium in our culture. Tonight, tonight our, uh, we're going to do two principles. First one is this. Uh, to overcome overload, you need sustenance. Sustenance. We, uh, we have two cows out on our property. They're both pregnant. Uh, one uh, I call cheese, and the other one I call burger. <laughs> and Monday night, at about 7 o'clock, uh, the first new arrival showed up. Uh, who I named Happy. And the next one that shows up will be called Meal. <laughs> Just to keep it all in perspective. There's a purpose for this. But it's been interesting since Monday night uh, to, watch this little, uh, to watch this little calf. And um, uh, probably 125, 130 pounds. Um, Angus, big, big little guy. And... Um, uh, my vet was out of town, and I've never done this before, so I'm making some calls and said, well, you've got to make sure, you've got to make sure he starts nursing. And he's got to nurse within 18 hours, or there's going to be some real problems. So I'm checking this little guy to make sure he's nursing. And it's interesting because he was starting to frustrate me because he was getting his head in the right place, but he wasn't completing the cycle. He just couldn't quite get a grip where he needed to get a grip. And, and I'm trying to help, and it's not, it's just not working. And uh, it didn't work that night, and didn't work the next morning, and the next afternoon I'm getting really concerned because you see that, uh, that little calf, if he's going to make it, really, really needs sustenance. Can't live without it, and neither can we. Um, I, I was reminded, I was watching that calf, and I was watching him, and finally, Finally, I heard, I heard the right sound. I figured, you, you know, he's found it here. We're, we're, we're okay. And, uh, and he's got his strength, and he's getting his legs under him. Um, he found the milk. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Peter 2, 2 that I've been thinking about ever since that little calf was born. And the passage simply says this in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The milk of the word of God uh, contains our, our nutrients. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, your A and E and C and chromium and potassium and selenium and all those things that we take for our physical health, spiritually speaking, is all contained uh, in the scriptures. Uh, that there is no other place that we go for food and for sustenance. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the Word of God. Now, I owe Chuck a real uh, vote of thanks, and he doesn't even know this, because as I listened to him on Sunday, I thought, he's, he's preaching the sermon for, for Wednesday night. You need sustenance. That's what that's what all that was about on Sunday. That's what Psalm 119 is all about, is the place of the Word of God uh, in our lives. It's absolutely central. It's absolutely critical. This subject of overcoming overload, we've been approaching it from the, from the aspect that our lives are so busy, that there is so much 
that demands our attention, that uh, we are pulled in 10 different directions at once. And as a result of that, we get overloaded and we get fragmented because of the pace of life. But there is another reason that we get overloaded. We can get overloaded uh, not from the pace of life. We can get overloaded from the pain of life. Because as we go through life, things happen to us. Uh, Things that are very, very difficult. Things that we never anticipated. Now, the scriptures have told us that uh, the the Christian life is is no easy ride. Uh, Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Um, That There is a life that's harder than the Christian life, but the Christian life is a hard life. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Uh, Philippians 1.29 says, uh, uh, to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Things happen to us as believers that that deeply wound us, that, um, that cut us to the core. I was recently talking with someone and and visiting with them, a very mature believer, very stable, um, very strong, very mature. And they're they're going through something right now that as they were telling me about it, they, uh, and we were in a situation, it was an office, and as we were talking, this person this guy just literally started to double up, like, uh, like someone kicked him in the stomach. That's, he didn't realize he was doing it. But as he was talking, he, his body language, he, he just kind of got to the edge, edge of, his, of his chair, and it was so painful, and it was so deep, and it, it was, um, he, he was trying to assimilate it and, and handle it, and, and he literally started... To, to go like this, it, it, not, not to that degree, but that was the motion he was making. It, it was like someone had kicked him repeatedly in the stomach. Uh, you've probably felt that way before. At times in the Christian life, um, maybe there's been a, a betrayal that has happened to you that has absolutely taken your breath away. I, uh, maybe your best friend, maybe your spouse... And when you got that news, it just, it just cut you as deep as you have ever been cut in your life. That's pain. Um, a child that you have raised to know the Lord uh, makes some decisions as to how they're going to live life that is so contrary to how they've been raised that, it, uh, that you can't sleep at night, that you can't get any rest, that you can't... Uh, you, you can't assuage that pain. You can't do it. It's just too deep. It just, it, it's at the very core and fiber of your being. See, we get overwhelmed and we at times get, uh, get overloaded, not from the pace of life, but from the very pain of life. That happens. 
That's what happened to the guy in Psalm 72. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn over there? Here's, here's someone that's in pain. Psalm 72, verse 26. Wait a minute. That's not right. I wrote it down. Wait a minute. What did I do here? I'm in pain. <laughs> ah, it's 73. Okay. Gosh. It's Psalm 73, 26. Look at what he says. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Literally, that reads this. My flesh and my heart fail. Um, he has had, uh, he's had the wind knocked out of him. He, he's had some, his, his heart is failing him. His flesh, he, he's ready to quit. He's ready to give up. He doesn't want to go on. Um, John Piper comments on, on this passage of Scripture, and he captured it so well. Uh, Piper says about the psalmist here, he, he says, he is expressing this fact, I am despondent, I am discouraged. But then immediately he fires a broadside against his despondency by saying in the next line, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist here does not yield to the fact that his heart is broken. He, he, he battles his unbelief with a counterattack. In essence, Piper says, the psalmist says, in myself, see, when you say my, 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 my heart, my flesh fail, I'm at the end of my rope here. Piper says this, in myself, I feel very weak and helpless and unable to cope. My body is shot and my heart is almost dead. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, you probably have. But whatever the reason for this despondency, I will not yield. I will trust God and not myself because he is my strength and he is my portion. Uh, someone can only say that. When, when, when you take a shot, when you have a, a, a disappointment, when you have a setback that, that rattles you to the core of your being, something that, that changes your life forever, I was watching last night, I guess it was last night, they're, they're getting ready to do all these specials on 9-11, and they had one on public television, and uh, it wasn't any video, it was just photographs. And the expressions on people's faces as they watched that, that tower, and then the second tower, um, and then running from the cloud, that was the result of the tower falling and the second tower falling. Um, and, and then the people, and you, if you've seen these pictures, that, that ash that just covered everybody. Everyone looked like a statue. And, and as those people were get, coming out of the delis and out from under the trucks and realizing they were alive, they were all in a state of shock. They're just people walking around in shock. And they all knew, and those of us that were watching, we knew that our lives would be marked forever. Our lives would never be the same again. 
Now, you've had other things happen in your life that have marked you and changed your life forever that you never thought would have happened. And they shock, and we're in a state of shock. It, it takes, sometimes it takes months and it takes years to uh, emotionally get your arms around that and to assimilate. Uh, if, if your husband walks out on you and leaves you with four kids, That's a death. That's a death. And he's killed you, and he's killed those kids. And he's running around like he's some kind of frat boy somewhere at spring break. Um, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. I think something like that happened to the guy here in Psalm 73. Uh, see, that's what causes your heart to fail. That's what causes your flesh to fail. Um, Piper goes on, and he says, and, and he talks about the fact that God encourages us in the Scripture when these kinds of events happen. And let me pick up this last paragraph. He says this, God has put these testimonies in the Bible so that we might use them to fight the unbelief of despondency, because when these kinds of events happen to us, we get despondent, and we get in despair, and, well, he describes it well. He says, Satan paints it with a lie, and the lie says to us, this is it. You will never be happy again. You will never be strong again. You will never have vigor and determination again. Your life will never again be purposeful. There is no mourning after this night. There is no joy after weeping. All is gathering gloom, darker and darker. This is not a tunnel. It is a cave, an endless cave with no way out. That happens sometimes. So how do you survive that? And ha how do you handle it? Um, you, you can't live through situations like that without sustenance. You can't live without truth. Uh, and when I say sustenance, obviously what I'm referring to here is, is the scriptures. And specifically, specifically, and, and this is where Chuck demonstrated so well on Sunday, specifically, I'm talking about the Word of God, but I'm talking about the promises of God. The promises of God sustain us when we hit the unforeseen tragedies and setbacks in life. They, they give us perspective. They give us hope. They remind us of what is true. Um, at our darkest uh, and deepest uh, hours. It's the promises. I thought that was an amazing story about him being on that plane. Because I, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing worse than an international flight when you're feeling good. <laughs> because you're on there forever. You're on there for three days. And then to get sick like that, and then to have your heart, I, I mean, wasn't that interesting? That they decided to talk about the promises of God. Um, that's what you do. You've got nowhere else to go. You've got nothing else to turn to. I got so much stuff up here tonight. 
Uh, I love this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Phenomenal book on the attributes of God. Um, he has a chapter in here called Thy Word is Truth. And he talks about the fact that God's commands are true, and then he makes the statement that God's promises are true. He quotes Hebrews 10.23 that says, He that is faithful has promised. And then he says this, In the days when the Bible was universally acknowledged in the churches as God's word written, and you understand that not in all churches is the Bible acknowledged as God's word written. Back in the days when it was understood as God's word written, it was clearly understood. Now catch this. It was clearly understood that the promises of God recorded in Scripture were the proper God-given basis for all our life of faith, and that the way to strengthen one's faith was to focus it upon particular promises that spoke to one's condition. You see that? See, that's one reason we have got to be uh, familiar with our, with, our, with our Bibles. That's one reason you hear in this church all the time the importance of the Word of God. B because there has to be uh, a, uh, a, a sense of what's there. You, you have to be interacting with it so that you will know what God says and that you become familiar with the promises because in certain um, uh, events and circumstances of your life, particular promises uh, are going to see you through and you're going to live off a promise. I was talking to someone just before we started, and they were telling me about Titus 1, verse 2. Just turn over there. And there's one phrase in Titus 1, verse 2, and, and Phil was telling me that a while back he had memorized the book of Titus. And out of all the good stuff that's in the book of Titus, he was reading verse 2, and it says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, that for weeks he would live off that one, not the verse, the phrase, God who cannot lie. Um, when, when, when your life is in complete upheaval and everything that you have counted on is gone, you need something to sustain you. You need a promise, but you see, we live in a culture where people make promises all the time. You, you, hey, you may have been married and someone promised you that they would be committed, for better or worse, sickness and health, richer or poor, till death do you part. And then they cut out. We live in a world where promises are broken all the time. God never breaks a promise that's why you can live off his promises, and his promises will sustain us. Uh, Packer goes on and quotes this old Puritan named Samuel Clark. Here's what Clark wrote a couple hundred years ago. Clark said, A fixed, constant attention to the promises and a firm belief of them would prevent worry and anxiety about the concerns of this life. So let me ask you something. So here we are on Wednesday night, okay? What is this, September 4th? Wednesday night. All right, we all look pretty good here. We're all dressed up, most of us in our right minds. 
we're, we're doing fine. But, you know, some, there, I, I, there just has to be some folks last night that didn't sleep much. Why? Well, because of something that you're dealing with, because of an issue that's happening in your life, because of something that's changed, something that was unforeseen. It could be a, a physical uh, situation. It could be a relational situation. It can be something related to work or something related to a child or a grandchild. or something. See, see, this is where we live, all right? A fixed, constant attention to the promises and a firm belief of them would prevent worry and anxiety about the concerns of this life. It would keep the mind quiet and composed in every change and support and keep us from having our spirits sink under all the troubles of life. Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promise. For there is no extremity so great, but there are promises suitable to it and abundantly sufficient for our relief in those difficult circumstances. The promises of God are central. Uh, you can't live without them. And God fulfills his promises. Um, Jeremiah 1.12, God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. You know the great thing about a promise? You can hold it up to the Lord. Lord, you said this. Lord, I'm counting on this. I, 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 I believe this. I know you'll sustain me. Um, Joshua, I love Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Uh, with, with the men last year, we, we were in Joshua. And in, in this particular passage, there, there is, uh, you know, they're, they're going into this land. They're taking on these giants. Uh, they got no business being in there. They're outnumbered. They're outmaneuvered. They, I mean, it, this, is, this is crazy, except God said, I'll give you the land. And Joshua 21, verse 43, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them, and the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Now catch this. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. God fulfilled every promise. Um, look at uh, Joshua 23, verse 14. Joshua is getting ready. Uh, to die, and as he addresses the people of Israel, he says, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, not one of them has failed. He's speaking of the promises of God. Do you have, do you have promises that you know? Do you have promises that you've put in your mind and in your heart? Do you have promises that you can easily access? I've got some in Psalms. Um, let's start at Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. Let me show you about five or six promises. And, and what I do is, I just kind of live off these things. From time to time, uh, I'm, I'm in them all the time. 
But, and then you'll have a, a week or two and maybe a month that, you know, it's pretty good. I had a pretty good summer. July was great for me. I mean, it was great. Things really cooked. In, I mean, they were wonderful in July. But you know what? I, I, knew, it was, I, mean, I knew something was coming. Because uh, as Spurgeon said, we cannot live in, in unalloyed happiness. We can't take it. If, if everything was the way that we wanted it to be, you know what? It, 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 uh, it wouldn't be good for us. Because we tend to wander from the Lord. That's why, who was it that said, um, gosh, I don't remember, but they said God, God in his wisdom mixes his mercies with his afflictions. God knows exactly what I need. See, He knows exactly what I need in the ratios that I need it. See, And there are periods of time where we're kind of cruising. Everything's going well. Everything, but you know what? I, I can't take that. Because what happens is I get proud and I get arrogant and I start thinking, well, this is something I'm doing. And so God knows how to... You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, let's look at some promises. Psalm 31. Verses 14 and 15. These are just some that I like. Uh, you find yourself at a place in life that's disappointing or you're not making the progress or you're stuck. Uh, maybe you've been laid off. Maybe you've been told that uh, you've got a terminal illness and you have six months to live. Listen to this. But as for me, I trust in thee, O Lord. I say, thou art my God, my times are in thy hand. This isn't surprising to God. This wasn't in your Palm Pilot. This wasn't in your seven-year strategic plan. But do you know what? It was in God's. God knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, look at Psalm 32.8. See, see, that verse encourages me that my times are in God's hand, and he is controlling my life. Every event of my life. Um, look at Psalm 32.8. You're, you're unsure about the next step. You're, you're, you need wisdom for a major decision. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. That's a promise. God will instruct us. He'll teach us. He'll show us the way that he wants us to go. He'll do it. Now, he might not do it on your time schedule. He, you might be in a waiting mode because it's not time yet. But at the right time, as you wait on him, as you seek godly counsel, he will give you the step that you should take. And until he makes the step clear, don't take it. Don't move. The, Israel was led in the wilderness by, by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they moved. If it's not clear... Stand your ground. Wait. Um, Psalm 33, 18. Here's another promise. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. God's eye is always on me. There are times when I need to know that because I don't feel that it is on me. And, and isn't it interesting how our battle is with our emotions rather than what is true? Because we have times where we feel that God has left us, when we feel that God has forgotten about us, when we feel that God has not been fair with us, when we feel that God has, um, uh, has put us in the back room somewhere. No. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. 
on those who hope for his loving kindness. Well, Lord, I hope for your loving kindness. His eye is on you. Look at uh, Psalm 34, verse 18. You may not feel that way, but that's the fact of the matter. Psalm 38, uh, 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. When our hearts get broken, sometimes we feel that God is far away. You may feel that way, but the fact is he's near. He's close. He's with you. But see, that's not, I, I don't feel it. But see, I don't live based on how I feel. I live based on what is true. We are a feeling culture. We are a feeling world. Oprah is not truth-oriented. She is feeling-oriented. Our culture as a whole is based on feelings. So, if you didn't get to bed till 1 and your alarm goes off at 5.15, how did you feel? That alarm went off. Oh, this is great. I'm exhausted. I can't see. I get to get up, go fight traffic, go meet with people. I don't want to. Did you feel like getting up? No. Not if you got four hours sleep, three hours sleep. Did you get up? Yeah. Because you can't live based on how you feel. You have to live based on what is true. When you don't feel it, you read it, and you count it as true. This is something you do with your mind. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. See, this is what sets us free. This is what sustains us. Uh, Psalm 37.3. Here's another one. These are just ones I pick out. i got them marked in my Bible. This may be my all-time... Well, no, Romans 8.28 is, is right at the top. But this is right up there. I love this. Uh, I'm looking at 37.3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Now, the New American Standard says cultivate faithfulness. But in the margin, there's an alternative Hebrew translation that reads this way. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. I'm going to tell you, I have lived off this verse for weeks before. You feed on his faithfulness. You just feed on it. Lord, I know you'll be faithful. Faithful is he who calls you, and he shall bring it to pass. And you get a concordance out, and you start looking up in your concordance, faithful, and get verses on the faithfulness of God, that when you need him, he'll be there, even when he seems distant. Um, here's another great one, Psalm 46.1. This was Martin, Psalm 46 was Martin Luther's favorite uh, psalm. And in Psalm 46.1, we read the very familiar words, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Once again, the reason I like the New American Standard so much, it's so true to the, to the Greek and Hebrew. And you'll see an alternative translation in your margin if you have a New American Standard. Here's how it reads. God is our refuge and strength. Catch this. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. Gosh, that's great. You ever been in a tight place? I mean tight. You make one false step, you're finished. You're done. It's over. You're history. He, 
He is not available. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. You live off the promises. You, you, like newborn babes, we long for the pure milk of the word, which includes the promises of God. I think I've, I've spoken so many times in August, I don't know where I said what. I may have said this here. But I, maybe I didn't, but I'm going to say it now. My grandma used to have, when she'd cook fried eggs for me and fried potatoes, that were phenomenal, um, and then give me my cholesterol pill, but when she'd cook that for me, and she'd put it down, and Grandpa would come and sit down, and my grandma would, but before we'd eat, we'd pray, and then we'd all reach into the box. at this long box, long, narrow box. And it had these little tiny cards in them. And you'd pull out, it was a promise box. And on each of those cards, on, on the front and the back, was a promise from the Word of God. See? You'd pull it out. You'd read your promise. Now, there can be some abuse of that because you've got to understand the context of promises. And some promises come with conditions. But, but usually the condition, generally speaking, if you love the Lord and if you're humble before him and if you want to be obedient to him and if you're willing to submit yourself to him and if you confess sin when you realize it's in your life, you know what? Promises are pretty much for you. Uh, he's for you. And you can live off of those things. That's what sustains us. But there's a second one tonight. Uh, we need sustenance. Those are the promises of God. There's something else. As, as we are walking through life, through this Christian life, and again, we probably ought to take an, an entire session and handle this one. Not maybe, we, we should take an entire session. But here's my next one. You need to make supplication. Uh, supplication specifically speaks of petitions, but I'm using it in the general sense of prayer. And, and, and you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, this is nothing new. I've heard this all my life, ever since I was in Sunday school. You're talking about the importance of Scripture, and you're talking about the importance of prayer. That's exactly right. It, you know, it's amazing how we keep coming back to the fundamentals. Um, Nolan Ryan pitched for a real long time. And I imagine the last couple of years that he was at spring training, he must have thought to himself at times, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. Because when you're Nolan Ryan and you're 45 or you're 46 years old, you probably don't need to go to spring training for six weeks to work on your pickoff move to first base. Because he's been doing it since he was seven. But you know what? Nolan Ryan would always go to spring training. Because in spring training, they work on fundamentals. There are certain fundamentals that we never stop working on. There are certain things that are just essential to life. There are certain fundamentals that we do on a daily basis. Uh, to have a good marriage, there are certain fundamentals that you have got to uh, subscribe to. doesn't matter if you've done them for 25 years. Well, you're, you're in your 26th year. You keep doing the fundamentals. That's how life is. There are certain fundamentals. Uh, prayer and Scripture are absolute fundamentals. But isn't it interesting 
how we can so easily get away from these things that are so basic to the Christian life. But when I get away from the sustenance of the Word of God, you know what happens to me? I get overloaded, and I lose perspective. When I get away from supplication, and when I get away from prayer, what happens to me? Uh, I lose perspective quickly. Philippians 4. Let's turn over there. Philippians 4, specifically verse 6. Now, this verse is one of these astonishing verses to me. That um, you read it and you just go, this, this, I mean, we believe it, but I mean, if we're real honest, you, you read it and you, you just think, my gosh, how can this be? Now, I'm referring, what I'm referring to is the statement where it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. Be anxious for nothing. That is ludicrous. Would you not agree? If, um, if you were laid off and you got three months severance and you're now seven months into it, you're telling me be anxious for nothing? Or you've got cancer and you've been through two rounds of chemo and you went back and you're going in for your third? Um, be anxious for nothing? I mean, come on. That's what it says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer. You see what just happened there? It's telling us right there how to deal with overload that comes from pain of difficult circumstances and the stress of life. Be anxious for nothing. You get anxious, you get overloaded. You get worried. You can't sleep at night. Be anxious for nothing. But, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. It's talking about prayer. And the peace of God. You know what this is telling me? This is telling me that prayer is a fundamental exercise and discipline that God gives to believers to help us make it through the difficulties and hardships of life no matter what comes your way. So you see, if prayer is that essential, if prayer is in a sense a release valve, and I get away from prayer, I'm in trouble. But it's amazing how we so quickly get away from prayer. Um, why do we get away from prayer? Well, because what we've been praying for hasn't been answered. It always amazes me when, when I'll talk with someone and they're in a difficult situation, and I'll talk to them about prayer, and they'll say, I've done that. Like, well, I, I tried that. Well, good. But you're still in it, right? Yeah. So why would you quit? Because, you see, James says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's sustained effort. Oh, and by the way, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. 
So if you're not being uh, truthful with customers at work, you know what? You're not, you're, you're not seeking righteousness. If you're lying to your wife, you're not being righteous. If, see, if there is sin in your life that you're not dealing with and not attempting to um, take before the Lord and grow in grace, if you're coddling sin, if you're covering sin, if you're hiding sin, you can pray to your blue in the face. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Then it goes on to talk about, talks about Elijah, who prayed for three and a half years that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. You see? Prayer, uh, prayer is really an interesting thing in the Christian life, especially if you believe that God is sovereign. Now, if you don't believe that God is sovereign, you've got a whole other set of issues about prayer. Because a lot of people who pray, they think, in fact, I, have, I actually read stuff. I've read tracts on prayer where people talk about prayer. Why do we pray? We pray, we pray uh, in order for God to change his mind and to change his purposes and to change his will. That's nonsense. That's not why we pray. Uh, why do we pray? Well, number one, we pray because we're commanded to pray. That's why we pray. Um, there's a guy named Arthur Pink who was really kind of a fascinating dude, as they say. Pretty strong stuff. But he's got a chapter on the sovereignty of God and, and prayer. Because, you know, the, the question is, why do we pray? Um, what, what, is, what is behind the fact that, that we pray. In other words, if you were here the first night, we talked about the sovereignty of God. Um, I quoted R.C. Sproul that in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. God knows everything about everything. He knows about everyone. He knows every event that's going to transpire before it happens. That's why God was not shocked when we were shocked on September 11th. God knows all things, past, present, future. He's in absolute charge. He's in absolute control. Well, then why pray if God's that sovereign? Um, and Pink gives us some answers that I think are outstanding. Here's what he says. He says, why has God appointed that we should pray? The vast majority of people would reply, in order that we may obtain from God the things which we need. While this is one of the purposes of prayer, it is by no means the chief one. Moreover, it considers prayer only from the human side and prayer sadly needs to be viewed from the divine side. And he says, let us look at a few reasons why God has bidden us to pray. Here's number one. First and foremost, prayer has been appointed that the Lord God himself should be honored. We honor God when we pray because we bow before him. And he is the sovereign king of the universe. Remember we said there are several lies in our culture that we hear all the time. You can have it all, you can do it all, you deserve it all. Uh-uh. But he has it all. He's sovereign. He's the king. So when we bow before the Lord, we're granting him honor from our hearts. Here's the second reason. Um, prayer is appointed by God for our spiritual blessing as a means for our growth in grace. 
You know, if you're in a rowboat and you're rowing, uh, you're out of, you're, let's say you're out a, a mile or so, and you're rowing into land, if you're, if you're rowing back to the, to the dock, you see, it would be kind of foolish as you're rowing to think that the land is coming to you. The land isn't coming to you, you're going to the land. Uh, we have some skewered ideas of what prayer is. Pink goes on and says, prayer is designed by God for our humbling. Prayer humbles us. And see, oftentimes we get in circumstances that are difficult because that's precisely what God's trying to do. He's trying to humble us because we're thinking higher of ourselves than we should. When you pray and you go into the presence of God and you realize you're in the presence of God, let me tell you something, that's humbling. Um, here's another one. He says, third, prayer is appointed by God for our seeking from Him the things which we are in need of. Um, now you'd say, well, sure, that makes sense, because we're a needy people. We are expected to pray. Isn't it interesting that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. He didn't say, if you pray. That's not what He said. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Um, I love this next section from Pink. This is great. He says, prayer, and we do tell our needs to God, but he says, prayer is not for the purpose of informing God as if he were ignorant, because Jesus expressly declared that your Father knows these things that you have need of before you ask Him. So prayer is not informing God of what we need because God doesn't know, but is to acknowledge that he does know what we are in need of. Prayer is not appointed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to Him of our sense of our need. We're not telling God, I need this and this. We're letting God know, Lord, I have this need in my life and I have nowhere else to go except You. Because I'm not big enough to pull this off, and I need your work in my life and your spirit to work, and I need, I, 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 you're my sovereign. I bow before you. I ask you to do what I can't do. Um, what was it? Um, let me see if I can find this. Yeah, Spurgeon said, It is better for your prayer to be heard than for your prayer to be answered. Did you get that? See, a lot of times when we pray, we're just like a doctor writing out a prescription. We come to the Lord, we got an issue in our life, and say, Lord, if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and here, fill that. We're prescribing to God what needs to be done. You don't know what needs to be done. God knows. See, we come to Him, and what we do is, is that we bow before Him, and and and. What was it that Jesus said? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. This is what, Matthew 6? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. There is more nonsense on this aspect of prayer in Christianity than just about anything else I can think of. 
You've got people commanding God to do certain things in certain extreme aspects of charismatic teaching. And God has to, they, they make this distinction, they speak it into this Rima stuff. Listen, He's the sovereign. You don't dictate to Him. You come before Him and you bow. And, 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 and there is a sense of awe and there is a, a sense of, of, uh, of submission. There is a sense of, um, there is a sense of great respect and um, a willingness to listen. He, he, he's God. We, we don't dictate to God. We, we don't... I think it was Tozer who said this. He said, the, 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 work, the, the hard work of prayer is getting yourself into a state of mind where you prefer the will of God. Did you get that? See, that's the work of prayer. The work of prayer is getting yourself into a state of mind where you prefer the will of God over your own. Because is it not true when we pray, see, we've got our little solutions. We got our, we got it kind of worked out. Lord, if you do this, and if you do this, and see, this is why sometimes we start trying to manipulate situations, and we try, start trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. You ever try to do that? You ever try to do that with your husband? I mean, wives all the time, and their husbands aren't believers, their husbands really aren't the way they want them to be. And so they're, they're doing this, and they're doing this, and they're putting tracks in the uh, Field and Stream magazine, and they're doing this, and, you know, they're driving that guy nuts. Do you think that's going to bring that guy to Christ, haranguing him like that? I, I, we're, trying, we're trying to, at times, we, we try to do the work of the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit. Why don't you let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit? Why don't you pray? I've, I've tried that. Well, try it some more. And let God work in His way and in His time. But see, we get anxious and we get ahead of God. Um, you know, God is, uh, God is so gracious to us in, in this whole issue of prayer because He knows our hearts and He looks at our hearts. I, I think a lot of times we get under the pile on prayer. Uh, Chuck talked about Martin Luther on Sunday. Martin Luther had a barber. And his barber uh, uh, cut his hair. That's, that's what barbers do. And he'd go in there every couple of weeks and see this guy. And one time they were having a conversation. And Martin Luther was a great man of prayer. It was Luther who said, I have so much to do that if I don't get up and pray for three or four hours, I can't get it all done. Well, I hear that and just puts me into the pile. Doesn't that put you into the pile? Um, but then again, Luther was a man that God was using to change the whole direction of Western civilization, away from the lie of Roman Catholicism into the truth of justification by faith. Um, so he was a man that was used in a strategic way, uh, one of the most strategic men in all of history. History pivoted on the Reformation. Um, and the truths that God used out of Martin Luther's life to, to preach and, and, and to change the world. So that's why he prayed the amount of time that he did because of the warfare that he was in. 
But his barber came to him and asked him. He said, you're a great man of prayer. He said, I'd like to pray, but I don't know how to pray. And Luther wrote a little book called The Simple Way to Pray. And just a few pages. This is a volume that's put out by, um, who is this? Uh, Westminster John Knox Press. And somebody wrote a foreword to it that's really pitiful. Uh, and then you, know why they, you know why it's pitiful? Because they make a statement here. Uh, they got to put their two cents in on what Luther wrote. And one of the things they say is, we will naturally find aspects of Luther's controversy with Rome outdated. Like what? <laughs> like indulgences? Like if you pay this much money, it'll get you out of purgatory? There is no purgatory. That you pray to Mary, you don't pray to Mary. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. You see, no, we still got issues. She may not have issues, but Luther had issues because Luther was biblical. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. <laughs> so he wrote this book for his barber, a simple way to pray. And you know what's great about this? Luther just goes through the Lord's Prayer. And he says, what you do is you just take the Lord's Prayer. And um, you know, folks, we make this more difficult, and we put ourselves under the pile that you've got to have four hours a day to pray. No, you don't. Prayer is, a, you know what prayer is? Prayer is how you walk. It's your, it's, it's just, it's your relationship with the Lord. You just get up, and you're with him, and, and you just start tracking with him. I, I get up every morning, and I basically say something like this. Lord, I, I, basically, I'll say something like, Lord, I give you my life all over again. I want to I follow you today. I ask you to lead me. I ask you to direct me. If I start doing something stupid, let me know. Have somebody tell me. Uh, instruct me from the scriptures. Don't let me get a hard conscience. If there's sin, let me respond to you. And I don't say those same words every day, but that's kind of what, that's my heart. You see what I'm saying? And, uh, and then as you're going through the day, you're asking him to lead you and to guide you and all this stuff. It's just walking with him. That's what it is. Um, he, one of the things he did with this guy, he said, just take the Lord's Prayer and take a section of it, like our Father. All right, just stop there. All right, for Tuesday, what's today? Wednesday. Uh, let's say Thursday, tomorrow. You take just the Lord's Prayer, our Father. And instead of going through the whole prayer, just say our Father. And what you do is, is that maybe you got five minutes, you got ten minutes, you're driving in your car, what do you do? Our Father. And you know what you start thinking? Lord, I thank you that you're my Father, that I know you. I thank you that you revealed yourself to me. I thank you that, um, I thank you that as, as my father, you sent your son into the world to die for me. I thank you that, that you're a father who has never made an error with me, who's never uh, spoken to me harshly. I thank you you're a father that's never abused me. I thank you that you're a father who's never lied to me. I thank you that you're a father that's, that always tells me the truth. And I thank you you're a father that's always available to me. And even when I don't understand myself, you understand me. See, and you just start talking to him and, and about his, the fact that he's your father. See? That's what you do. And then maybe you're quiet for a while and you think about that. You see? That's prayer. And then the next day, um, you know what prayer is? Prayer is sort of like don't you love it in the wintertime? You go up to Colorado, and they got these big fireplaces, and they just, these big roaring fires with these logs. I mean, I love roaring fire, big fires. 
Not these little wuss fire logs with wax in them. I like the big ones. Did you ever try to make a fire like that? You just don't get the logs and get a match and the, and the, and the Denver paper and all of a sudden, unless you use the gas. Now that's, you know, but I mean, you do it the real way. You do it the man's way. You'll never get a fire. Uh, at least I never do. How do you mill the fire like that if you don't have gas or propane or that? You know what you do? You start small. Because you got, you got to take some kindling and, and then you got to light it. And then it'll kind of get going and then it kind of starts. And you, and you get going, you get a little more kindling. And then, and then you get, see, that's what you do in prayer. You don't, at least I don't, wake up in the morning with this rip-roaring fire of prayer and beseeching God for the nations. Do you do that? I don't do that. I got a little, I got a little kindling going here. Get a match going. And it starts to die. Okay. And you kind of, and you kind of just kind of, kind of stoke it. That's how you do it. You're, you're warming up your heart. See? That's what prayer is. Um, there are different ways to pray. Uh, you, uh, you know, I walk. I walk and I pray. Wherever I, we live out in the country now, and I can walk around our property, and I get a course layout, it's a mile, and I don't see anybody. Uh, except the cows, I see them. But, you know, I walk, and I'll tell you what, I pray, a lot of times I'll pray out loud. But before we lived there, uh, I mean, for 25 years, I've always, wherever we've lived, I've always found a place where I could walk. And there weren't too many people around. When I walk, I pray. I'm thinking. I'm pondering. Uh, that's what I'm doing. Some people don't do it. My wife doesn't do it. You know what she does? She journals. She writes her prayers. She's got volumes. She's got notebooks. She writes her prayers out. Just from her heart. That's what's going on, what's going on this morning. She just puts it, puts it down. You know what's great about journaling? Is that you can go back. Five, you can go back five years down the road. And you can go back and read. And you can see how God came through. That's what's amazing about it. Uh, prayer is an expression of the heart. Um, there are all kinds of different prayers. There's corporate prayer. There's prayer that we do on Sunday morning with the body. You have friends that you pray with. Jesus talked about secret prayer. Let me go about ten more minutes so I got this. We'll have this. We got to hit secret prayer. Because secret prayer is something Jesus specifically talked about. Uh, go with me to uh, Matthew 6, if you would. Matthew 6. In, in Matthew 6, Jesus... Verse 5. And when you pray... Notice when. You are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room or go into your closet. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret and who sees in secret will repay you. Uh, the closet 
is the secret place. Now, there are different kinds of closets. You can have a closet by walking in a park where there's nobody around. You can have a closet by journaling. There are different ways to find a closet. It has to do with what we were talking about last week of a sanctuary. You can make your car a closet. But the fact of the matter is, you get away from people. You get away from individuals, and you go one-on-one -on -one with the Lord in terms of prayer. And, and what you're doing here is that you pray from your heart. You know what's great about praying in secret? Is that you can say things in secret when you're just with the Lord that you can't say when you've got other people around you. you. You can absolutely pour out everything that's in your heart to the Lord. You can name names. You can tell him you're angry. You can tell him you think things are unfair. You can be absolutely transparent and vulnerable with him in a way that you can't be with other people. Because you're in secret, and you're telling him your heart, and you're getting off your chest what's in there. And, and you tell him you don't understand his timing, and you don't know why this is happening. And, and if you just pour your heart out to him. That's what he's after, is your heart. You know, I think sometimes we get discouraged in prayer because we don't see, we don't see the answers that we thought we'd see. I was thinking about this driving over here. When uh, we moved to Dallas in 1990, we'd been in Little Rock, and I'd done this book, Point Man, and it had just come out, and I started getting all these requests because this was before Promise Keepers, I started getting all these requests to come and speak to churches about men, and nobody was doing that. And, I mean, we got between three and 400 requests the first year. And there was no way I could do all this. And some guys that were close to me said, you know, Steve, listen, God, this is what you need to do. I mean, this is very clear. I mean, three, 400 requests. Let's set up a ministry. Let's have you do that. You know, quite frankly, you're not that good of a pastor. Let's, let's find something you can maybe do here. And so we decided we're going to do it. We're going to live in Dallas instead of Little Rock because I don't want to fly in and out of Little Rock. It was just a very practical move and why we came down here. And I remember when we decided to make this move, we put our house up for sale and houses weren't selling in Little Rock. I mean, they weren't, they weren't moving. Nobody was selling houses. Uh, as I recall, I had several realtors tell me the average time to sell a house in Little Rock was nine to ten months. And we were hoping to move to Coppell and we were hoping that we, and this was like February, we were hoping that we could get down there and get established so that our kids could start school in August. But no one was buying houses. And we had two, three months go by, and nothing was happening. And we're praying. I'm praying with Mary, and I'm praying on my walk, because I had an area there that I walked. I walked early in the morning, and I walked it late at night, and I'd pray. And I'm laying out this before the Lord, because I didn't know how this was going to work, and it, it, was, it was a huge transition for me. And we pray, and nothing was happening. And then I saw something in a magazine about a lease with an option to buy. And so I thought, well, maybe that would work. I could do a lease, and then, so I put it out in the paper. And I had two guys call me. And, uh, and they wanted to come by and look at the house. And the guy that came by Saturday night, he looked at it, and he said, we'll take it. He said, we'll be by Monday to sign the papers. And we couldn't believe it, because we were going to get out of there and be able to come down here, at least with an option to buy. An hour and a half later, the guy called me, and he said, we decided not to take it. I still remember that Saturday night, out there with Mary and the kids, and I remember just 
I remember us under that pear tree, and I remember just thinking, why did that happen? I mean, we can't move houses here. And I finally had a guy that was hot. He was ready to go. And he, for an hour and a half, we had it. And then, and I'll tell you, I was discouraged. I did not. I remember that night, I had trouble sleeping. I remember that night, I was, I was really kind of upset. I didn't know. What, this was going on for months. And we needed to move. This needed to happen. And I had put a thing in the paper for an open house Sunday afternoon. And which was the next afternoon. And Mary and the kids went down to the pool. We had a neighborhood pool. And she went down with the kids, and I said, I'm going to stay here. And I was watching the Masters. Was it the Masters? Yeah, Greg Norman, it was the Masters that he had the lead, and he blew it. You golfers know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm watching that, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And I open it, and here's this family, husband, wife, and these five little stair-step kids. And they said, you have an open house? And I said, yeah, come on in. And I couldn't believe it. Somebody was actually, and they looked around, and I'm watching Greg Norman miss a putt, another putt. And then and they come downstairs, and, and the guy says to me, he's probably, I don't know, early 30s, he says, uh, he said, hey, I saw your books upstairs. Are you a Christian? And I go, yeah. He said, yeah, I am too. And I said, oh, great. And he said, yeah, I just finished my residency, and I'm going to work for a practice here in town. And he said, you know, my wife loves this house. I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, hey, how do you, I saw your, how do you do a lease with option to buy? I said, I don't have a clue. <laughs> and I didn't. But I said, you know what? I'll find out. He, uh, he said, do you mind? Can we look around a little bit longer? I said, yeah, help yourself. So they look around about 10 more minutes. They come downstairs. And he said, do you mind uh, if I go get my pastor and, and uh, bring him over here? I said, no, that's fine. So he goes and gets his pastor. I mean, I didn't know if the pastor was going to live in the back bedroom or what, but <laughs> he goes and gets his pastor, and the pastor comes over, and then they're looking around, and then they want to pray, and we pray about this whole deal. And then they leave, and then about an hour later, they come back with some other people, and so we pray. And Mary's, still, Mary's at the pool the whole time this is going on. <laughs> this is absolutely true. And... and and they said, we'll take it. He, he said, I don't know how to do this, but he said, I don't have the money to buy the house. In a year, I'll have the money. Can we work a deal where I lease it from you for a year, write it up, and I'll buy it from you? I said, we can do that at this price. We got it all worked out. Mary came home and said, you're not going to believe this. We got it done. And it was, I mean, it was wonderful. And these are Christian people. So the next day, we go to Chili's for lunch. And we're, we're just going out to celebrate. I'm walking into Chili's. And I walked by this guy at the table, and he grabs me. He goes, hey, Steve, how you doing? And it was a guy I knew that went to another church in town. I didn't know his name. I didn't know what he did. I'd just seen him around. And he says, hey, I hear you're moving to Dallas. And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, oh, that's great, and I hope that all goes well. And uh, he, said, he said, you sold your house yet? I said, well, no. In fact, I just got someone to, to, uh, to, to lease it the other day. And he goes, oh, really? What's his name? And I thought, why? And I, and I said the guy's name. And he says, you're kidding. He's coming to work for me. He's joining my practice. I said, you're kidding. I said, hey, give him a raise so he can buy my house. <laughs> and we, ha ha, you know, we go back, eat our lunch. Two nights later, I get a call from the guy that's leasing my house. He says, Steve, he said, I got the money to buy your house. I said, what? He said, I've got the money to buy your house. I've got the down. I said, how'd you get that? He said, well, didn't you run into... <laughs> I still don't know the guy's name. Didn't you run in him at Chili's? And I said, yeah. 
And he said, well, he came up to me later that afternoon and he said, hey, does your wife really like that house? You guys, I mean, that's, that's what you'd like. He goes, yeah, we love the house. He said, well, why don't I just go ahead and advance you the money and you can go ahead and buy it. And you see, the way it was going to work, we were going to have to come down here and not buy a house because I had my money tied up in the house. We were going to have to rent for a year. But we had found a neighborhood that we liked and now we could do it. And so then we get down here and we're going to be able to get our kids in school and we walk in and we say, here's our money, we're ready to buy the house. And the guy says, okay, and he looks and he says, well, that house will be ready by Thanksgiving. And we say, oh, wait a minute. Well, we, we, we'd have to rent until Thanksgiving. He said, no, we need this house and this plan. And he says, no, it'll be Thanksgiving. And the guy goes, I'll never forget. He turned in his chair and he goes, wait a minute. And he goes through his file and he goes, you know what? We just poured the foundation on a spec house of that exact plan. You want to go over and look at it? Yeah, we went over and looked at it. I said, when will this house be ready? He said, right around August 15th. Uh, we moved in on a Saturday, and our kids were in school on Monday. And then it just goes from there. I remember spending hours that year praying in secret, walking, asking God to lead me. And I had times where I was frustrated. You know what? I got stuff right now in my life I'm really frustrated about. So do you. But God is sovereign. And God knows what he's doing. So how, how do I handle my frustration? I live off the promises. My times are in your hand. You know when my kids start school. You know this. You know that. You know that. And you know what that does? That begins. That begins to take the pressure off. Because he's sovereign. He's in charge. He's in I don't dictate to him. I bow before him. That's how you live. It's the best way to live, isn't it? Let's bow before him. Father, we, we've looked at a lot of stuff tonight. And this is nothing new, but you continually draw us back to your word. When we get away from it, we get weak, we get emaciated, we get uh, overwhelmed, we get depressed, we lose hope. But when we get back into your word and we, like that little calf, I, I just... I, I, I watched this morning. He's just sucking for all he's worth. Every bit of it, he's just sucking. He's just sucking that milk. Lord, we've got to suck on the promises. It's what sustains us. And, and then, Lord, in hand in hand with that, we pray and we express our dependence. We, we don't dictate. We just let you know we're so dependent. We don't know what the timing is. You do. We don't know what's best. You do. And Lord, we've walked with you long enough to, to see that things have, have happened that have gone contrary to the way we thought they were supposed to happen, and then, and then you'll turn it. And then you'll do something magnificent and something marvelous. I pray that you'll help us to remember tonight what we've seen you do in the past. Help us not to become weary of, of well-doing. Help us to walk in trust. Help us to walk in faith. Um, Lord, some of us have situations that look absolutely hopeless. But our hope is in you. 
Help us tonight before we go to bed to pick out a promise and to ponder it and to pray over it and to go to sleep by it. We'll rest well tonight because we're living on the promises of God. In your name we pray.